So last month, uh, National Public Radio uh, featured a story about Daryl Davis. The story was titled, How One Man Convinced 200 Ku Klux Klan Members to Give Up Their Robes. And it's about Daryl Davis's remarkable story. Over the last 30 years, Daryl has convinced 200 members of the Ku Klux Klan to give up their robes. And he does this by befriending them. And then he engages in their lives. And then he is able to persuade them how ridiculous their worldview is. And then they give him the robe. And he keeps these robes. He's got a collection of robes from former Ku Klux Klan members. And he keeps them as a reminder of the dent that he has made in racism by simply sitting down and having a conversation. Daryl Davis is a believer. He's a blues mu musician by profession. And all of this began at a show years ago at the Silver Dollar Lounge. This white guy comes up to him after Daryl was playing um, show. This white guy says to him, I really like your music. I've never seen a black man play the piano like Jerry Lee Lewis. And Davis kind of smiled and then said, well, where do you think Jerry Lee Lewis learned how to play that style? <laughs> and then, you know, he went on to talk about how, you know, rock and roll came from black blues and boogie-woogie piano. And the guy says, oh, no, no, Jerry Lee Lewis admitted it. And Daryl Davis said, read your history, man. And then the white guy says, after a time of conversing, he said, you know, this is the first time I've ever had a talk with a black man. And Daryl Davis says, well, now, I mean, how is that? You're like 15 to 20 years older than me. I've talked with thousands of whites. What's with that? And that's when Davis learned that this guy was a card-carrying member of the KKK. And then Davis stopped laughing. But he started wondering, why has this conversation taken place? Why has this music brought us together? And Davis said that a seed was planted. And he chose to water the seed. And, and this led him to write a book about one question. How can you hate me when you don't even know me? See, Davis went around the country then to interview Klansmen. And he did his homework. He learned about their organization. He was courteous. He was firm. He was friendly. He was direct. He went to some very risky places. But he said, when they saw that I knew more about their belief system than they did, they respected my knowledge. Davis said, when you are actively learning about someone else, you are passively teaching them about yourself. And then he said, when two enemies are talking, they're not fighting. It's when the talking stops that the violence starts. David says, I don't care who your enemy is. If you can spend five minutes with them, you'll find something in common. And as you build on what's in common, you'll start a relationship. And then as you nurture that relationship, it has the possibility of becoming a friendship and then when you have that friendship you can chip away at their false ideology 
David says, find someone who disagrees and invite them to your table. Hmm. He says, I'll give you an example. He says, there was this white guy. He was an exalted cyclops sitting in my car in my passenger seat. The interviewer said, well, what was he doing in your passenger seat? David said, I invited him. Then he said something, and I'd heard this before. This white guy says, well, we all know that all black people have within them a gene that makes them violent. David says, I turned to him and I, I'm driving. I said, wait a minute. I'm as black as anybody you've ever seen. I've never done a carjacking or a drive-by. How do you explain that? And this guy didn't even pause to think about it. He says, well, your gene is latent. It hasn't come out yet. Now, David says, how do you argue with someone who is that far out in left field? I said, I was dumbfounded. I'm just driving along. He's sitting over here in the passenger seat of my car, all smug and secure, like, well, you have no response. David says, I thought about it for a minute, and then I used his point of reference. I said, well, you know, we all know that all white people have a gene within them that makes them a serial killer. He said, what do you mean? David says, well, name me three black serial killers. <laughs> and he was silent. <laughs> he, he couldn't do it. David says, well, let me see. There's Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer, Charles Manson, John Wayne Gacy. They're all whites. He said, son, you are a serial killer. <laughs> Daryl, I've never killed anybody. Well, your genes lighten. It just hasn't come out yet. <laughs> then the guy says, that's stupid. <laughs> Daryl Davis says, well, duh. <laughs> he says, but you know what? You're right. What I said was stupid, but no more stupid than what you just said to me. Then Daryl Davis says it got really, really quiet, and he changed the subject. And five months later, based on that conversation, he left the Klan. And his robe was the first robe I ever got. Francis Chan once said, live in such a way that your life demands an explanation. Live in such a way that people say, why are you this way? Well, as far as Daryl Davis is concerned, he says it's because of Christ. It's the love of Christ makes all the difference when it comes to my relationships. The love of Christ makes all the difference. And isn't that what we've been learning in Paul's little letter to Philemon? Once again, let's turn in our New Testaments to the letter of Paul to Philemon. You'll find that on page 1,000 of your church Bibles. Philemon is the true story of three people from three very different cultures. Three very different socioeconomic backgrounds. Racially, economically, educationally, generationally diverse. Paul, a Hebrew, once Christianity's fiercest enemy, now Christianity's foremost leading apostle. There's Philemon, who is not Hebrew. He's Gentile. He's a wealthy businessman. There is a congregation that meets in his home. That's how large his home is. And then there's Onesimus, who is the slave of Philemon. 
This letter surrounds the story, and the story is this. Paul writes from prison in Rome, asking Philemon to forgive and receive back his fugitive slave, Onesimus, who had stolen from him. That's the story. Paul gives this letter to Onesimus and sends Onesimus home. And before any words are exchanged, Onesimus hands Philemon this letter, not knowing how Philemon's going to respond. And we still have this letter. We, that is, we have, we have the letter, the content preserved. We don't have the original letter to Philemon, but you know we do have the earliest copy of this letter to Philemon. This is called Papyrus 87. It is uh, the earliest known copy of Paul's letter to Philemon. It's dated around A.D. 250, which means it happened, we have the copy is about almost 200 years after the fact. And that may seem like a long time to us, but in the ancient world and in terms of determining historicity, did this really happen and validity, this is, this is a very short amount of time be between the original and the copy. And what you see in this small copy here are... Verses 13 to 15 and verses 24 to 25. I share this with you to make sure we all understand that this is a real letter from a real person to a real person about a real situation. Paul, from prison in Rome, asking Philemon to forgive Onesimus, who had stolen from him. Now, thus far in our series, we have been looking at this letter through the perspective of the main characters. We've looked at it through the perspective of Onesimus. What is God asking of Onesimus in this letter? And in verse 10, Paul tells us that Onesimus became a Christian. And in verse 12, Paul tells us that he's sending Onesimus back to Philemon. Why? To make amends. To Acknowledge his peace for the sake of peace. Acknowledge his peace for the sake of peace. Go back and make it right, Onesimus. And of course, Onesimus shows up with the letter. That was his intention to do so. For the sake of peace, you need to own your peace, and you can't own your peace if you don't acknowledge it. So go. Then we read from the perspective of Philemon. Verse 17, Paul says, Receive Onesimus as you would receive me. Philemon was wronged, and Philemon needs to forgive. Forgiveness does not change the past, but it does enlarge the future. Now, it would be nice to just stop right there and just consider this letter from those two perspectives. It would be nice to stop and say, well, you know, like Onesimus, I've experienced the joy of coming clean, and I, you know, it's great. I'm right with God. I'm right with my family. I'm right with my wife. I'm right with people. I've got a clean conscience. I've owned my peace. That's great. It would be nice 
to say like Philemon. I've, I've let it go. I've given grace. I've forgiven. I've stopped demanding that others pay. I've stopped being a victim. I'm not bitter. I'm better. Those are two great lessons from those two perspectives. But I want to tell you, church, there's more. There's more. And it's concerning this question. What is Paul's perspective? Paul was the one who is the author of the letter. And from Paul's perspective, we are called to participate in this ministry, this privilege, this active work of peacemaking. Peacemaking. We are called to be a bridge of peace through which others can traverse toward restored relationships. We are called to represent Jesus himself. How easy it would be for us to simply identify with Onesimus or Philemon when the real question is, how can I be like Paul who is imitating Christ? Do I want to be the kind of person who not just owns his peace but is used by God to make peace? Do I want to be someone who not just gives grace but helps create a culture of grace? If only the meaning of this letter were, if you want peace, own your peace, and forgive as the Lord forgave you, now let's go. Wait a minute, sit down. No, we're not done. We can't be content with a soft interpretation of this letter. There's more. And what's more is that this letter informs us that because we belong to God, did we not just sing the song, I'm no longer a slave to sin, I'm a child of God? Well... We belong to God. We are in his family. We are heirs of a coming kingdom. And heirs have responsibilities. And it is the responsibility of peacemaking. So on the one hand, Philemon calls us to be a voice to the voiceless. To be an advocate to those who need advocacy. To give visibility to those who feel invisible. And Philemon nudges us to consider what lengths we must go to argue for what Christ wants even with our closest friends. Do we stay silent when a friend is drowning in a tangled mess of ethical dilemmas that require clear moral decision-making? Are we going to summon up the kind of relentless courage that Paul exhibits in Philemon to confront and to confront, to speak up, and to love our friend to a higher moral ground? Proverbs 27.5 says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Hidden love does me no good. So God is imploring us to the responsibility of sonship. And that entails peacemaking. Now those of you who are in Celebrate Recovery will know that this, I mean, this is the 12th step, right? Uh, I've modified it for this message and it sounds like this. Yield myself to God to bring the peace of God to others by my example and my words. Yield myself to God to bring the peace of God to others by my example and by my words. And that's why Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called sons of God. 
What do sons of God do? They are peacemakers. And peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. A harvest of righteousness. So what does it take to be a peacemaker? Well, these verses give us three truths. And the first truth is this. Peacemakers know who they are in Christ. They know who they are in Christ. That's verse 1. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. He repeats this in verse 9. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. That's who I am. Paul has nothing to lose because he's already lost everything. Paul's view of himself is totally tied to Jesus. I'm a prisoner of the Lord. I belong to When you read the word prisoner there, it is synonymous with the word slave. I'm totally God's. He owns me. I'm his. It's his will done in and through my life. And Paul wants Philemon to know that. Paul doesn't begin this letter like he began the letter to the Galatians. That was a troubled church, and they needed a sheriff. So Paul begins Galatians sheriff style. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, not by the will of man or by any men, but by the will of Jesus Christ in God the Father. I am surprised that you are so quickly deserting the gospel for another gospel, which is really no gospel, leaving the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is the matter with you people? Drop down and give me 50 push-ups right now. That's not how, that's, that's not how Paul begins here in Philemon. He begins, I'm a, I'm a prisoner. You know, I don't have anything to lose because I've lost everything. Peacemakers are like that. They know who they are. They serve out of their identity. I belong to God. I'm his representative. I'm not representing myself. Therefore, I'm free from self-interest, self-concern. I'm free from self-centeredness. Listen, as long as you're thinking about yourself, protecting yourself, shielding yourself, then you're not going to be able to help those whom God has sent you to serve. I mean, you know this. Think in a relational conflict, the two parties involved are each asking questions like, well, what about me? What about my rights? What's, what's due to me? When am I going to get what's mine? When am I going to get my apology? And when am I going to get forgiveness? And when, when can we move on? And well, okay, those are important questions. But if in addition to the parties in conflict, the peacemaker starts asking those questions about himself, there's never going to be any peace because the peacemaker is not there for attention or affirmation. The peacemaker is there to serve. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. So the proof that you are growing in your relationship with God is when you start to focus outside yourself. The proof that you are preparing yourself for this spiritual depth of peacemaking is when, you know, there are folks that enter a room and they are a I am here kind of person, right? And then there are those who enter a room with a you are there. And peacemakers are you are there. 
you are there. They, they know who they are. They, peacemakers know who they are, and as a result, they know who others are, especially those who are in conflict with each other. And so when the peacemaker comes between two parties, and it's obvious that one of the parties is really being difficult, the peacemaker isn't ruffled by this. Daryl Davis was a part of a documentary called Accidental Courtesy that talks about uh, his peacemaking attempts. And one of the things that I appreciated about uh, the documentary about his life was that when he was sitting down with these members of the KKK, did not ruffle his feathers at all. He was unoffendable. And peacemakers don't fly off at the handle. Peacemakers understand. Oh, well, they're like that because they are still governed by the God of this world. Oh, this poor soul is a victim of Satan. I must have mercy on him. And the moment you begin to look at that person like that, you're in a position to help and make peace. So you have to have an entirely new view of the person. Peacemakers have a view of themselves. They know who they are, their identity. They, they have an identity of those they serve. But then most importantly, they have an identity about who God is. A kingdom perspective. And the kingdom perspective has one concern. And it is the smile of God. The glory of God. Whenever there's an occasion for peacemaking, there's always something larger at stake than whose fault is it or whether I'm right or wrong. The biggest issue is this. Hear me. Will the handling of this situation embarrass the king? Or will it give glory to the king? Now, if I do not commit myself to glorifying God, then by default, I'm going to glorify someone else, namely me. So in peacemaking, I either show that I have a big God or a big ego. How can I best represent Christ in this situation? And just as God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, so Christ was in the apostle Paul reconciling Onesimus to Philemon. And that's peacemaking. Peacemakers know who they are in Christ. That's point number one. Point number two is this. Peacemakers, because they know who they are, see, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Because they know who, know who they are, they then speak redemptively. They speak redemptively. So here's my great quote for the week. There's no such thing as a diplomatic hand grenade. <laughs> Remember that when you're in a peacemaking session with someone. Every word Paul wrote in his letter to Philemon was diplomatically and skillfully chosen. So he self-identifies as a prisoner for Christ Jesus, verse 1. And then in verse 2, he addresses Philemon as a beloved peer, our beloved fellow worker. And then uh, he calls Apphia, we assume that's Philemon's wife, a sister in Christ. So 
Philemon and Aphia are serving Christ together. And, and then there's Archippus, their son. What finer compliment than to tell a young man that he's a fellow soldier. He's a warrior for Christ. And then in verses 4 through 7, Paul just gushes over Philemon. I remember you, and when I remember you, it leads me to pray for you. I thank God for you. I enjoy you, Philemon. You are refreshing to my soul. You refresh the souls of the church that meets at your house. You know God. You love God. You trust God, and it shows by how you treat others. Paul doesn't mention Onesimus until nearly a third of the way in the letter. And why? Because brokering peace requires diplomacy. It requires giving respect. It requires verbal discipline. Peacemakers wise enough to see where the other person's coming from and how they perceive the problem and how they are processing and how they think we perceive them. Paul knows that Philemon will likely have a different version than Onesimus. He's, he, he's only heard from Onesimus. Well, of course there will be two stories. Proverbs 18, 17 the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. Proverbs 18, 17. Sounds like my relationship with my brothers when I was growing up. Huh? So Paul, he knows this. He's careful in his request. He doesn't tell Philemon, look, get over it. In verse 8, he begins to share his heart more candidly when he says, you know, both of us know that I have the authority to tell you what to do, Philemon. I'm not really interested in that. I'm not interested in anything heavy-handed. I want you to do this because you want to do this. And in verse 10, he personally vouches for the change in Onesimus' life. Onesimus was not a Christian when he fled Philemon, but when he met Paul in Rome by the mysterious plan of God, he came to know the Lord. And that's why Paul says, he's my child in the faith, and he's no longer just your servant. He's more than that. He's your brother. He's your brother. And this leads us to the ask in verse 17. Treat him like you would treat me if I were there. Receive him as you would receive me. Philemon, you refresh the church. I'd like for you to refresh me. Will you please do that through Onesimus? My child and your brother in Christ? I'd like some benefit from you in the Lord. And Paul says, oh, if he owes you anything, I'll take care of it. Verse 18. And he assumes that Philemon will do the right thing. Paul assumes that. Verse 21. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. What might that be? Well, Paul would like Philemon 
to then, you know, send Onesimus back to Rome to belong to Paul's ministry team so that, so that Philemon can, uh, excuse me, so that Onesimus can serve on Philemon's behalf. So it's like, Philemon, I want you to pretend that Onesimus is me when he comes to see you, and then I want you to send him back to Rome where I am, and I'll pretend that he's you. That makes sense? Paul, a spirit-led apostle, writes a spirit-inspired word of God to a spirit-led brother about another spirit-led brother. I mean, how can this go wrong? Paul knows that words have weight. Paul knows that the tongue has the power of life and death. Paul knows that what I say and how I say what I say can either bring life or death into my relationships. Do you know that? You have the power to give life or take life by what comes out of your mouth. Are you a life giver or a death giver? Depends, doesn't it? Depends on what comes out of your mouth. And what comes out of your mouth is always a reflection of what's in your heart. Peacemakers. Their identity is in Christ. Peacemakers. They speak skillfully and diplomatically because they have a heart for Christ. And then the third truth, peacemakers anticipate, anticipate a righteous harvest. That's what's behind verse 22. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Oh, Paul says, Philemon, I'm coming for the harvest not to monitor something that I don't think will occur. No, no, no. I want to celebrate the gathering. I want to see the next chapter in your relationship with your brother in Christ. I want to personally experience and witness the fruit of your leadership by doing the right thing. And how you respond, Philemon, is going to affect the church that meets at your home because you're the leader and your life, and what you do, and how you respond, it affects others. And when the Roman community, a community that is steeped in segregation and stratification, class and status, when that Roman city and that Roman culture sees a spiritual community consisting of people from all walks of life, all nations, slaves, free, Jews, Greeks, Romans, Africans, Arabs, Cretans, when they see military, civilian, educators, laborers, managers, when the world sees us gathered as one family, worshiping and singing and praying and learning and serving together and submitting to one another, that dynamic calls for an explanation. And when they see this community of believers submitting to one another, submitting to one another. When they see, when they see 
a senior pastor who's been at a church for 28 years and he's white. And he submits to the authority and to the leadership of an eldership that is chaired by an African-American brother in Christ. When the elders give a senior minister of this church a directive, you need to know that he does it. And you are free to ask any of our elders if you would like confirmation on that. And the reason why I do it is because of the Spirit of God lives in these men. And I trust them. And I love them. And I know they love me. So anything that they ask of me is for us and for God's glory. That's why this is so important, church family. And that dynamic calls for an explanation. Live your life in such a way that it demands an explanation. And Paul gives us the explanation in verse 25. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Grace. Grace makes amends. Grace offers forgiveness. Grace makes peace. Grace grows a harvest of righteousness. And there you have Paul's letter to Philemon. We've got a copy of that letter. But whatever came of Onesimus? Hmm. Well, did you know that 50 years later, one of the great Christian martyrs, a man by the name of Ignatius, he was taken to Rome for execution as it was in the days of persecution. On his way, Ignatius wrote a letter to the church in Ephesus. And we have a copy of that letter. It has survived to this day. Ignatius wrote a word of thanks to the church because the bishop of Ephesus made a pastoral call to encourage him on his way to Rome facing execution. And, and Ignatius said, you know, when your bishop visited me, it was as if the whole congregation encouraged me in Christ. Do you know who that bishop was? His name, Onesimus. Onesimus. Useful. Useful by name, useful by nature. Onesimus, the slave who became a Christian, who became a brother, who became a bishop. 
How does that happen? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how that happens. Amen.